New legal trouble for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. In what's apparently a first, the U.S. government is bringing espionage charges against someone who published classified information. Assange's lawyer says the charges are a threat to all journalists. Since 2012, Julian Assange's world has only narrowed. After being first huddled in an Ecuadorian embassy in London, he was arrested by police in 2019. He has since remained behind bars in Belmarsh Prison, awaiting extradition to the United States to face charges of espionage. Undoubtedly provocative and capable, Assange is both a torch for journalists' freedom and a nuisance to the national security of the United States. His clearinghouse of confidential information, WikiLeaks, has revealed details of immense public interest, US military detention in Guantanamo Bay, and most notoriously, the indiscriminate killing of journalists at the hands of the US Army in Iraq. His work has drawn the ire of all sides of US politics. He has leaked hundreds of thousands of US diplomatic cables, as well as the emails of Clinton ahead of the 2016 presidential election. For an insight into the current legal fight to stop his extradition, we spoke to Greg Barnes, who has provided legal counsel to Assange and remains close to him and his family here in Australia. A former political advisor, prominent criminal barrister, Greg Barnes's career has brushed with many great events in Australian politics. Today, Australia decided no to the idea of becoming a republic. He was in charge of the last but defeated Yes campaign in Australia, the 1999 referendum to create an Australian republic. We hear about his experience and the future of this movement, which we place in the context of the upcoming referendum to establish an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to Parliament. Greg has also written extensively on Australia's political scenery, deeming the Liberal Party a shell of its name. As such, we discuss the idea of liberalism and the long rise of Australian right-wing populism. Okay, well, thank you for joining us, Greg. To start us off, um, how did you first come across Julian Assange? I first came across the Assange case um, as a member of the Australian Lawyers Alliance, and uh, I think I was president at the time, and we got involved in advocating on his behalf, particularly in relation to claims that he may have committed offences in Australia. Um, I then um, spoke with his father, John Shipton, and uh, helped to organise what sadly was an unsuccessful Senate campaign for Julian Assange out of Victoria in 2013. And how have you maintained that relationship since? I mean, would you say you have now a personal relationship with Julian? Well, you know, certainly I've met Julian and uh, I speak um, sometimes almost daily with his father and his brother. Uh, I've maintained uh, an advisory role in the Australian campaign for many, many years um, and certainly I haven't spoken to Julian for some time because he's been uh, banged up in Belmarsh Prison, but certainly had dealings with him. Um, and I'm now, uh, as I say, an advisor to what is a, a pretty hardworking Australian campaign uh, that um, his brother, is uh, Gabriel, is involved in and his father. So how does it come about that a, an Australian citizen is pursued by US espionage laws? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, how does an Australian citizen come to be prosecuted under a US law? Uh, it's the first time the United States has used its domestic espionage laws to prosecute someone who, one, is not a US citizen and two, did not publish directly in the United States um, and three, who did not receive the information while in the United States. 
So that's why this prosecution is troubling to a lot of news organisations, a lot of journalists, um, because of that reason that it's the extraterritorial reach which is uh, disturbing. That is, any journalist in the world who publishes material that the US doesn't like could find themselves uh, on the end of an extradition request. I mean, how do other countries react to seeing this kind of behaviour from the United States? I think it's fair to say that there's been real concern. There's certainly been concern in the European Union, in the European Parliament. There have been a number of MP support groups formed, of course, notably in Australia, where now well over a quarter of the Parliament is signed up to the Assange Friendship Group. And I think for many nations, it demonstrates that the United States' uh, commitment to freedom of speech is somewhat wanting. Whilst there's a lot of rhetoric about democracy and liberal values and freedom of speech, um, it's difficult for the US to be taken seriously when it complains about uh, journalists elsewhere in the world being detained, such as in Russia or China, when itself is detaining an Australian citizen for publishing material, which was clearly in the public interest. Mm. So what's the current uh, status of uh, Julian Assange's extradition to the United States? Uh, the current status of the extradition is that it sits before the UK courts, where it's been now since 2019. Uh, there are a number of appeal processes to being pursued, uh, and it could end up in the European Court of Justice. That's why it needs a political solution. This case will go on and on uh, if there is no political solution, and it is a political case. Extradition cases are often political because at the end of the day, they involve the government, uh, two governments, uh, essentially having to agree that a person should be extradited. And what's the current nature of the disputing? So what exactly are they trying to do to prevent the extradition in terms of its legal argument? The, in terms of the current uh, nature of the dispute uh, and, and why Julian's uh, legal team in the UK is opposing the extradition request, firstly, self-evidently, the charges are political. Um, these are charges that are laid because the United States was embarrassed by publication of a clear evidence of war crimes in theatres of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. We, we know the notorious collateral murder video showing US troops gunning down innocent civilians in Baghdad. Uh, and there's a carve out in the extradition treaty that prevents people from being extradited in circumstances where um, the charges are clearly political. The other argument, of course, which has been a very strong argument, is about his health. Um, he's in a position where his mental and physical health has declined markedly. Uh, the United States jail conditions are notoriously harsh, and despite assurances given by United States lawyers in an appeal court last year, you couldn't certainly um, have uh, place any store on those assurances once Julian gets to the United States. Uh, you know, frankly, it could kill him um, if he were in the United States. The UK has uh, previously refused to extradite citizens on the basis of um, poor health and the fact that they won't get appropriate health care in the United States. Theresa May, the former Prime Minister when she was Home Secretary, did so a number of years ago, um, the person with mental illness. So that's a very, very strong argument in this particular case. Next question is, what exactly is the motivation from the United States to be so aggressive in, in trying to... Um, I mean, essentially prosecute Julian Assange. Well, I think they're trying to send a message and teach a lesson. Um, you know, what Julian Assange did was embarrass the United States, uh, particularly in relation to the collateral murder video where you saw US troops gun down innocent civilians in Baghdad, uh, clear evidence of war crimes. Um, and the United States has been uh, embarrassed 
by uh, these revelations and determined to pursue him. Interestingly, it was the Trump administration which uh, increased the number of charges. The original indictment was fairly modest, but the enlarged indictment uh, using the Espionage Act uh, was a Trump administration initiative because there'd been debate within the Department of Justice as to whether it could, in fact, uh, those charges could be laid because, of course, there is the First Amendment freedom of speech uh, issue in the United States. So um, from that perspective, uh, uh, this has been a relentless pursuit, uh, as it was, of course, of Chelsea Manning, who was uh, you know, said to have handed over this material but of course, who had her sentence commuted by Barack Obama shortly before Obama left office. Is there maybe an expectation that the United States would wish at least for Julian Assange to fall into their jurisdiction and their prosecution until then they would maybe consider a similar pardon as they had with Chelsea Manning? Well, it's difficult to know, Hugh. I mean, the difficulty with going into the jurisdiction itself is, one, the prison conditions... Uh, despite assurances that have been given by English lawyers in English courts, um, prison conditions in the United States, particularly for this type of offence, alleged offence, are notoriously harsh. Uh, secondly, uh, the jurisdiction in Eastern Virginia where he would be tried is a jurisdiction which has a very, very high rate of conviction for people for similar types of charges. Uh, that's the difficulty with going to the United States. Um, certainly, uh, uh, you know, his, his legal team uh, needs to know, and we are getting it from the Albanese government, that there is, you know, a potential political solution. Because at the end of the day, this case is highly political, as we know, uh, and it does require a political solution. Um, we saw Stella Assange, I think only a, a day ago, st stating that Australia is the United States' most important ally. And in effect, Julian's life is in the hands of the Australian government. Would you agree that now this has become a question for diplomacy? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, uh, it has been for some time, and we tried to impress that on the previous coalition governments. Anthony Albanese understands that. Um, I think it's very significant that he, uh, that Stephen Smith, the new High Commissioner, went to see Julian in Belmarsh Prison. I can't remember the last time that an Australian High Commissioner has gone to see an Australian prisoner in a UK prison. It's also significant that Kevin Rudd is the ambassador now in Washington and is on the record as being supportive of Assange. And so um, th there, there are those factors. There is also the factor of leverage. In fact, I've just written a piece for the South China Morning Post uh, quoting Bob Carr, for example, the former foreign minister and others who've been rightly saying Australia is now wholly signed up to the China containment strategy in the Asia-Pacific region. It has enormous diplomatic leverage uh, in Washington, and uh, this ought to be a conversation that can be had, and secondly, that can result in Julian coming home. The, uh, the Julian Assange case has been drawn in terms of its similarities to the cases of David Hicks, the Australian who found himself in the torture chamber in Guantanamo Bay um, as a result of terrorism charges. Could you maybe describe a bit that case and its relationship with the Assange affair? Well, look, the relationship really lies in the fact that both had political solutions or one had a political solution that worked. Um, Hicks, of course, was, I think, found in Afghanistan uh, in 2001 um, then sent to Guantanamo Bay, uh, where he remained for some years. Um, there was then a very concerted campaign, as you might remember, Hugh, uh, and, and it started to impact politically. In fact, I think it was one of get-up 
uh, GetUp's first campaigns in Australia, it started to impact in marginal seats and mainstream Australians starting to say, look, whatever he's done, he doesn't deserve to be tortured in the way he's being tortured. And of course, a, a deal was done where I think he pleaded to a charge in a US military court, uh, came back to Australia, served a very short sentence in an Adelaide prison and, and got on with his life. And that was in 2007. The point is that there's a precedent. Um, whilst um, governments, all governments say that they cannot interfere in the legal process of other countries, uh, the reality is that governments do uh, not so much interfere in the legal process, but do remove matters from the legal process by simply saying, let's involve diplomacy, let's involve the political realm here to come to a solution that's just. Should Julian Assange be extradited to the United States, what will happen there? Well, I, I think people fear that he would die. And, and that's been, I think Stella, uh, his wife has said that. I think that it, there was evidence before the UK courts of the, the, the conditions that amount to torture in some of the supermax prisons in the United States, uh, and he would not get a fair trial. There was evidence given in the extradition proceedings about the high conviction rates, extremely high conviction rates in Eastern Virginia. Uh, and so uh, he would be faced with an intolerable prospect if uh, sent to the United States, forced to go to the United States. Okay, well, we might move on to our next topic, uh, republicanism. Um, the first question being, um, did you watch the coronation? No. No, uh, and I support Stan Grant. Next question, you. <laughs> you had a long experience of the Australian uh, Republican movement. Uh, when did that first stem um, within you? Well, I think when Paul Keating first raised the Republic issue, you know, I certainly jumped on board. At those in those days, I was a member of the Liberal Party, and uh, there were a number of Liberals who, of course, jumped on board. In fact, I worked for Ray Groom, the Liberal Premier in Tasmania, who was the first uh, Liberal Premier in Australia to support Keating's push. Uh, that was back in 1995. Um, and then I, I worked for John Fay. I was his chief of staff when John was the federal finance minister. He also was a strong Republican. And so, you know, I had an interest in the Republic issue, really, as I say, since Paul Keating first raised it around 1992-93. And how do you view the movement today, having seen it really go towards different cycles and maybe even its peak at, in 1999? How do you see the movement today? I think it's in very good shape, and I think you know having um, Craig uh, Foster and and Nova Paris is is um, uh, very desirable in terms of leadership. I mean, Peter Fitzsimons, the previous leader, did a great job in funding the organisation, making sure it was put on a very very secure footing. But it's really important now, uh, moving forward, uh, that the movement uh, continue to have high exposure, and it does have high exposure. And I think I think Craig and Nova are doing a very good job in that regard. And I think it's probably now at its strongest point, uh, you know, well, certainly since the late nineteen nineties. And from what I understand, you were one of the very important leaders within the the referendum in ninety nine. Um, what was that experience like? Well, I'm the only person in this country who's run a yes campaign um, prior to the current voice yes campaign, and uh, that was my role working for Malcolm Turnbull uh, and the and the campaign committee. Um, look, it, it was an exhilarating experience, an extraordinary experience, a historical experience. In the end, extremely disappointing. You know, one of the difficulties we had in that campaign was the division amongst Republicans, as as you'd recall, and listeners and, and uh, would recall. In 1999, you had Phil Cleary, a former independent MP, Clem Jones, a former mayor of uh, Brisbane, and Ted Mack, a former uh, uh, federal uh, MP, 
coming together with the no case, with the, the dyed-in-the-wool monarchist to uh, jettison this version of the Republic. That was very, very damaging. But it was also the fact that you were up against John Howard, a very determined campaigner, and a number of Liberals who did not support uh, and the conservative movement did not support a republic. And so it was a very difficult campaign. But I, I think that we can hold our heads high in the sense that you know, we ran a very positive campaign uh, as opposed to our opponents who, you know, and we're seeing it similarly now with the no campaign, you know, constantly throwing in doubt, constantly throwing in exaggerations of what might happen if you make a constitutional change. Yeah, and it, it seems to be the big struggle with a yes campaign, particularly when there's there's a proposition, and you have the onus of proving all the detail and in its specific form, whilst no only has to suggest that the gist of it and all the specific details are themselves faulty or wrong. Yeah, e exactly right, and and I'm seeing it again with the yes campaign now um, that uh, they're trying to run a very positive campaign. They're trying to get out information. Uh, but they're up against, and we saw it uh, particularly uh, with Peter Dutton in the parliament this week, you know, running a, a disingenuous campaign, nasty campaign, really saying, oh, this is, you know, this is like apartheid. It divides Australia. It doesn't unite us. I mean, you know, sort of tactics out of the no campaign playbook from 1999. Is it is it frustrating to see with all this personal experience? It is frustrating to see because I feel for those who are running the campaign, I think the difference this time, though, Hugh, is that you've got a prime minister who's obviously on board and you've got a government that's not divided on the issue. Um, and you've also got strong support from, you know, um, former high court judges, uh, leading lawyers. Uh, you know, you've got some you've got some very reassuring voices. Mind you, uh, having said that, we had them in 1999. You know, we had former prime ministers, Hawke, Fraser and Whitlam all of them on board. Um, we had uh, constitutional scholars, including conservatives like Greg Craven, who were saying that this was a safe option, safe model, you know, and, and it still didn't get up. So, but I do, but I just get a sense that this, this one might get across the line. It's been suggested that the success of the voice referendum this coming year will have an important um, effect in deciding whether there will be a second referendum for Australia becoming a republic. Yeah, look, I, I I hate to see the link between the two, but I understand if you're a prime minister and you've run one referendum and you've lost, you'd be wary about another one. They don't come they don't come around very often. I mean, we've had what 46, 47 since 1901. You know, the, the the thing about the republic is, of course, it's well and truly time, and it's been time for a long time, but it's particularly time now. Uh, with the ascension of Charles. Uh, in fact, I saw a poll in, uh, somebody referred me to a poll in Canada recently, which has always been much more monarchist. Voters under, you know, under 40 in Canada now, two out of three say, ditch the monarchy. You've got in the UK now a, a growing Republican movement. Um, you've got in the West Indies, uh, I think Barbados has already moved to become a republic. I think Jamaica is about to do it. You know, Australia is one of the few nations now in the Commonwealth which maintains the link to the British monarchy. We had a conversation uh, for this show with uh, Arthur Synodonis, um, the former chief of staff under Howard, as well as um, the former Australian ambassador to the United States. Uh, he, he says he sends his regards, as a matter of fact. I like you know, Arthur. He's a nice guy. He, he had an interesting description of Australian conservatism, which was the Australian electorate if it's 
fine with the current government, I imagine the same system as well, then there's not much reason for people to look for something different. In other words, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What do you think of arguments like that defending the current um, you know, system we have in Australia today? Look, I, I hear what Arthur's saying, and it was a big theme of the No campaign in 1999. The system works well. Why should we change it? And we had we, we were experiencing that with our focus groups, and when you know you'd go out and talk to people, particularly younger people, surprisingly, uh, and particularly people uh, in regional Australia, saying, "Look, you know, I like one, I like the Queen. Two, so you had that personal connection in that case. But two, you know, what's wrong with the current system?" I think uh, the voice is a little different in the sense that what you're talking about here is Indigenous recognition. And so the system is well and truly broken. And I don't think anybody in Australia would say that, you know, we shouldn't have Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. I think the real issue is this myth that you're creating some third arm or fourth arm of government uh, and that's where, you know, if it, it's a potent, I mean, Arthur's point is, is it, it's a potent point to say, well, you know, I don't, you know, think much of politicians, but, you know, we're a democracy and the democracy works. Why would we tamper with it? You know, it's a precious thing. Yeah, because it was speaking of that in, in relation more to Australian electoral history from the past. No, of course. Yeah. No, look, and he's, and he's right. But I, I don't think it's just Australia. You know, I think it's in, in every democracy. Those pushing for reform... Um, always have an uphill battle uh, because uh, there is a tendency in democracies to, particularly in good times, to say, you know, the system's not particularly broken. Uh, we could improve it, but we don't need what the conservatives would call radical change. I think there's also maybe the impression that there needs to be some kind of maybe constitutional crisis or really the, the sense that it is imperative for there to be change just like we saw with the, the Governor-General's intervention in, uh, I believe, the 70s, uh, with um, in uh, essentially uh, removing or dismissing an Australian government. Correct. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, it's not a constitutional example. Roger Douglas, the former New Zealand finance minister in the Longy government back in the 80s, once said to, uh, to myself and a group of people that, you know, the reason they were able to embark on massive economic reforms in New Zealand, effect effectively transforming the New Zealand economy, there was no, nothing untouched, was because there was a crisis. I think the IMF was about to be called in, the government was broke, the Muldoon government had been voted out. But he said, you've got to create the sense of crisis. You've got to convince people that you can't keep going the way you're going. Now, that's always difficult with constitutional matters. And, and the point you make, Hugh, I mean, even, even the point you make, Hugh, though, is we had this ma major crisis in 75, but no one attempted then to codify the, the reserve powers of the Governor-General. Um, there was no uh, push to say, well, let's not let that happen again. I mean, it could theoretically happen again. So changing the Australian constitution is notoriously difficult, much more difficult, I think, as I understand it, than changing constitutions in other countries. Many countries, you can change the constitution if you get two-thirds of parliament. I think I'm right in saying that. But the referendum process um, makes it an extremely high bar. And uh, it means that, you know, generating the case for reform mm. is so much harder. Well, this might be a good uh, transition now into discussing the current state of Australian politics. What do you think of the current Till movement? I think now, having recently seen the New South Wales election, 
since the the great uh, first wave of the Teals in the federal election. What do you think they now represent? And particularly, what kind of warning does it send to the Liberal Party? I wrote a book in 2003 after I left the Liberal Party. They disendorsed me for a seat in Tasmania um, over the refugee issue. And I wrote a book called What's Wrong with the Liberal Party? And I effectively said Australia does not have a Liberal Party. What you had was a Conservative Party, you had the Labor Party, uh, and then you had minor parties in, in those days, the Democrats and also the emerging Greens. The Teals are essentially smaller Liberals. Um, if you look at them and what they stand for, it's not very different to what you know, people like liberal luminaries of the past, like Fred Cheney, um, ironically his niece, of course, now a teal, uh, Peter Bohm, uh, you know, those um, liberals of the, the, the 1970s, what they stood for. And of course, it's significant that they won in, I think I'm right in saying you, predominantly liberal, previous liberal electorates, because the gap in the political ideas marketplace, which... I identified in 2003, and which has been there ever since, is you've got a lot of people who are economically liberal and socially progressive. Now, the Teals, um, of course, not all of them are economically liberal. Certainly, um, the member for Wentworth, uh, whose name is just now, John Spender's daughter, whose name has now just escaped me, Allegra, Allegra Spender. Yeah, I mean, she is a economic and social liberal, as was Malcolm Turnbull. But essentially, I think that's what they represent, uh, and I think it was very significant that in Kuyong, for example, um, they were elected. I mean, that's an electorate where you've got uh, people who are wealthy, but people who are wealthy uh, and high, on high incomes, doctors, lawyers, business people, are not necessarily conservative anymore. They used to be, and they used to vote liberal traditionally, but they don't anymore because a lot of them do uh, have, one, social consciences, and two do believe in uh, the case for economic and social reform in Australia and see the Liberal Party as having shifted too far to the right. Yeah, and you, you have suggested that this maybe this is a kind of the rise of a, of a populist right within the Liberal Party, which you've attributed actually since uh, to even John Howard's uh, rise to power. Correct. I mean, again, um, uh, I sound like I'm flogging books, but uh, I was asked to write a book for Hardy Grant in 2019 called Rise of the Right, which was about the war on Australia's liberal values. I think you can trace it to Howard. It's a good read. I recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I, I think that uh, you can trace it to Howard. He was, um, and I think overtly, and I think he said it, I am the most conservative leader that the Liberal Party has had. The tamper issue, I think, became extremely potent for the Liberal Party. They realised then as have countries around the world, as we've seen, including currently in the UK, just how populist policies on asylum seekers and on immigrants, how potent they are in the electorate, in an uncertain electorate. And the Liberal Party has become a populist party in that sense. It's picked up populist right-wing causes. Um, if you look at what Peter Dutton's doing in relation to the Voice campaign, he's echoing this, you know, this line about you know, elites versus you know, regional Australia. This was Howard's language, of course. Australia is, I mean, despite Howard saying he wanted to bring us together uh, and, and focus on the things that unite us, he had a clear division between those he called the battlers and the, and the so-called elites. And Dutton uses the same language and it has led to a, a party which has got a lot in common with uh, some of the Republican Party in the UK and also the sort of you know, Brexit-style uh, conservatives uh, in the in the UK. I should have said the Republican Party in the US. 
But, you know, it is a populist right party. And that's why, you know, finally we've seen the emergence of people like Bridget Archer, who is uh, a member for Bass in Tasmania, uh, standing up and saying, you, you know, there is got to be a return to some liberal values. And, uh, you know, long may she live. It's, it, there's a very interesting trend that's been identified within the changing of the main parties within, let's say, one political system where you're seeing a kind of elite capture. And, and that's something that um, Tim, Thomas Piketty's uh, research in political science has begun to identify. And it's where the, the right mainstream parties are being captured by an, an economic elite, whilst um, the mainstream left-wing parties are actually being captured by uh, an intellectual elite, those that are highly educated within society. Do you identify those kind of patterns as well? Uh I'm not sure it fully applies to Australia because if you look at the Labor Party, you know, the Labor Party is a pretty pragmatic centre-right party. Um, I'm not sure that the left has ever captured the Labor Party. The Liberal Party, um, you know, is it speaking for the big end of town? Well, yes and no, but business got very frustrated with the Morrison government, you'd, you'd recall. Uh, you know, it's calls for reform, tax reform, IR reform, all of them fell off their fears. I'm actually in Greece at the moment, and they just had an election here on the weekend. I think that's certainly true of a country like Greece. I'm no expert on Greek politics, but you know that certainly happened in a country like Greece, what Piketty's talking about, where the right-wing party is seen as being the party of business, um, the left of uh, sort of uh, seen as being, uh, and you know essentially the left intellectuals. Um, and in fact, uh, in the election, surprisingly, despite the fact that everybody was complaining about the cost of living and the fact that, you know, the ordinary people weren't being listened to, the Conservatives have essentially won the election. I think they've got to go to a runoff now, but essentially won the election. You um, just earlier mentioned how you were disendorsed by the Liberal Party when you were running for a seat uh, in 2003. Uh, could you maybe elaborate a bit on that experience? Well, uh, I, I went back down to Tasmania. I come from Victoria, but I went back down to Tasmania with a view to running in the 2002 state election for the Liberal Party, and I got endorsed. Uh, I was uh, I did write a series of articles for the Financial Review criticising the Howard government over its attitude to asylum seekers, essentially saying this is illiberal. And I had a lot of strong support from Malcolm Fraser, uh, for example, John Hewson and others, but... Uh, the Liberal Party in Tasmania in those days was well and truly controlled by Senator Eric, now ex-Senator Eric Betts, uh, and I was disendorsed uh, by the Liberal Party. Um, I did join the Democrats for a short time, but essentially decided to give politics away, active politics away. But I wrote the book, I was asked to write the book the year after I was disendorsed in 2002, and I wrote the book, What's Wrong with the Liberal Party in 2003. Had you considered jumping ship to the Labor Party? Never. No, I, I mean, I, I've never been, you know, well, let me go back a step. I grew up in a family that voted Labor. Mm -hmm. uh, my father was a lawyer. My, my mother was in the sort of welfare field. I went to Monash University and I became, uh, I did a major in political science as part of my arts law degree. And I read heavily on liberalism. In fact, interestingly, two of the Senior people in the politics department were former Malcolm Fraser staffers, David Kemp, who, of course, became a minister in the Howard government, and Dennis White, who was, uh, I think, became chief of staff to uh, to Malcolm Fraser. 
and when I joined the Liberal Party in 1980, Hugh, there were Liberals, uh, including Fraser himself. Um, the the party um, had a, a wasn't known then as left uh, and right factions, but it certainly all wets and dries. But they did emerge in the early 1980s. But the party did have a very it was a very broad church, and there were genuine Liberals, and including in Victoria, for example, you know Dick Hamer, who'd been Premier through the 1970s was, you know, nowadays would be seen as, you know, hard left, even by the standards of the, the Andrews government in Victoria. Um, you know, he was very, very progressive. But where do you think maybe that the small L liberals should find their home? I mean, should they reinvest in, in either party and try to, you know, through the, the kind of factional contests of party politics, reemerge through that importance? Or should they even consider making a whole new party? Because we know in Australian politics, a third party is going to be a very, very difficult thing to achieve. We don't have a, an electoral system that, that's going to really allow for that. Yeah. And, and the last time it happened, where people got elected to the House of Representatives en masse, you know, I thought, well, the last time the Conservatives split, I think, what are we going back to the 1930s, 1940s? You know, there is a home for a sort of liberal Democrats, if you look at the UK or, you know, in, in Canada, the liberals. There is that gap, partly filled by the teals now. I think the, the issue is, you know, the the genuine liberals making sure that they assert themselves within the party. John Pasuto is doing it in Victoria. He's, he's doing it very tough, but he's standing up very resolutely for liberal principles rather than conservative principles. And he's been as I say, resolute about it. In New South Wales, there's always been that factional battle. Um, but it is important for uh, liberals as opposed to conservatives, not simply to buckle as they did in the Howard government and go along with the agenda. Just for the audience, because I know it, it's sometimes difficult in the context of our politics where for us, as you say, that the Liberal Party is in fact a conservative one. For the audience, how would you describe um, po liberal politics in the form you would think it's truest? Socially liberal. So therefore, for example, support for a Human Rights Act, um, support for um, freedom of speech, um, freedom of movement, uh, opposition to the sort of anti-protest laws that you're starting to see now in Australia, accountability of government, control on uh, police powers. You know, these are classic sort of liberal issues, uh, a more open uh, refugee policy, I would also say economically liberal. That is to um, be looking at constantly looking at the size of government, not not for the purpose of simply you know slash. I think the days of slash and burn budgets are gone, but we do have to address debt in this country, uh, and we are going to have a reckoning in relation to that. What is it that is done best by government and what's not? Nick Grunner, I think, who was my first political boss, Nick Grunner, I think, got that right. I mean, New South Wales. The point wasn't. Yeah, the private sector does it better. It was what works best and where do we put the resources? And they are the sort of, and, 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 and you know, so you need, for example, tax reform. I mean, you know, Saul like The Economist and others have called for, uh, you know, broader based land tax, getting rid of stamp duty. You know, these sorts of, these sorts of reforms, these liberal economic reforms are required as part of a, uh, a, a more progressive liberal party. Do you think these ideas have fallen out of favour amongst voters or they're simply fallen out of favour amongst the main political parties? I think they've fallen out of favour amongst the main political parties. I think I think there's been a, 
you know, amongst the main political parties in Australia, there's been a shocking timidity in terms of policy reform. I mean, the last great policy reforms, or perhaps I use the word great as in large scale, were really the, and I was part of this in a very minor way as Chief of Staff to John Fay, were the Costello uh, tax reforms of the late 1990s. Um, you know, since then, everything's been tinkering. Um, we've seen very, very little reform. The last state government to really start genuine reform was Dominic Perrottet's in New South Wales when he did embark on land tax reform, as it has been done in the ACT. But there is now a timidity. I don't think so much, you know, these ideas have fallen out of favour. But I think what happens is that, you know, if you look at 2019 federal election, Labor had, I think, some very modest uh, extremely modest proposals in relation to, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it was, uh, you know, higher level superannuants, etc. Um, and look at the look at the scare campaign that was run against them, uh, including by people with shocking self interest, you know, in the financial industry, you know, holding public meetings, and so that scars people. Uh, I think that, you know, the the loss of John Hewson in 1993. Uh, also was very scarring and remains a scar, um, an unfortunate scar because fight back was whatever you thought of it, uh, a comprehensive, the most comprehensive package ever taken by an opposition to an election. But of course, it was picked apart brilliantly by Paul Keating. But it has meant that parties now say, let's not develop policy really of any consequence until the last moment so that we don't give an opportunity for a scare campaign. And I think that's a real pity. Hmm. You've also noted, I think in the book you mentioned um, that you wrote in 2019, that even on some of the left wing of uh, politics has actually shown a tendency towards conservative or even strict uh, policies of law and order. I mean, I think you made reference to protest laws in certain states, as well as um, even bail uh, and drug laws in, in Victoria, for example. Do you want to maybe develop that subject a bit? Sure. I mean, I don't think it matters if they're Labor or Liberal governments. When it comes to the criminal justice space, there has been a monumental failure and there has been a resort to populism now for three decades. Uh, it was imported from the United States and the Reagan administration. It first manifested itself in truth in sentencing laws in New South Wales. We then saw the first, uh, introduced by a Labor government, uh, mandatory sentencing laws in um, in Western Australia, uh, the harshest bail laws in Australia in Victoria, which led to tragic consequences of the death of an Aboriginal woman and now a scathing coronial inquiry about those laws. Um, in South Australia at the moment, I notice uh, that there's uh, debate about a, a, what looks like a draconian protest law. That's a Labor government. Both governments have done it with disastrous consequences. Um but that's been so-called left-wing governments. I mean, Daniel Andrews talks about being progressive. In some ways, he is. But when it comes to the criminal justice system, there have never been more people jailed in Victoria than under the Andrews government. Now, you know, we've, we've been able to generally touch the, the questions of right-wing populism. One thing I've always noticed is that sometimes the way, in, the way we use uh, the term populism is often in a very rhetorical sense. Now, there's a lot of criticisms to it, of course. But what do you say to people who claim that a populist is simply a popular movement that you don't happen to like? Uh, no, I think it's more than that. I think I, think I would define populism as being uh, a pandering to prejudice 
uh, and to irrationality um, and a setting aside of good policy and policy that works. That's how I would define it. I mean, you know, um, you know, if you look, take, let me take criminal justice because as a lawyer, I know it well. Um, jail is rarely a solution to reducing crime. Uh, harsh bail laws are rarely a solution to reducing crime. Um, you know, locking up kids in detention centres is not a solution. And in fact, it's, it's counterintuitive and counterproductive. Now, that's populist policy. Um, and that's what I mean by populism. The evidence suggests that this doesn't work, but you keep doing it because you, it wins your votes and it wins your support in the media. That's populism. But in policy making, there's always going to be that consideration of the popular vote and what it does. Maybe what you're suggesting is it's considered to the point where whatever the policy is, it's going to have the opposite of effect of what's desired. Well, you've got to bring people with you. I, I, I mean, you know, there are plenty of examples around the world. And again, I'll stick to criminal justice that I know well. There are plenty of examples around the world where people have been engaged in a debate uh, and, and laws have changed. Look at drug laws. I mean, the United States now you know, uh, and Canada uh, and parts of Europe uh, have de uh, either decriminalised or alternatively, of course, cannabis is now widely available. That was unthinkable 20, 30 years ago. Now, when it comes to drug laws, um, the New South Wales government, as I understood it, the Perrottet government wanted to make reforms and was blocked by the right in cabinet. But you can bring people with you. People do understand the need for change. I mean... You know, to the credit of the Andrews government, introduced, you know, an injecting facility, drug injecting facility in Richmond, uh, and is about to do another one in, in the city. Now, you know, of course, there are people who are opposed to it. But generally speaking, if you talk to people in Victoria, they say, well, people need help. They shouldn't be dying on the streets. So, you know, we would rather have these facilities in place, despite the fact that in, you know, the, the views of some, it's sanctioning drug use and it's a soft touch. Well, Greg, well, this will bring us to the uh, end of our, our interview. Um, thank you very much, Greg Thank Barnes. you, Hugh. Thank you to the listeners of today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast or follow us on Twitter. Till next time. Thank you.